CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From Bonnie London Town, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black Southern gentlemen Esquire just returned from a midday luncheon it's Sunday here in London town and the traditional Sunday meal is the Sunday roast which you can find in homes and pubs and grills all across this fair nation and the Sunday roast is a just a monstrous meal it's usually some sort of roast meat accompanied by potatoes and veg and, uh, I don't know, a rocket salad and some sort of crumble or pudding, you know, the way the Brits eat, like uh, like savages. I had my first Sunday roast last week. We went up to Crouch End, where some friends live, enjoyed a terrific Sunday roast. I opted for some lighter fare. The wife got herself some boof. Uh, there was also lamb available. I started with a smoked salmon appetizer and then had some sort of fairly bland salad for my main and then sampled the pudding afterwards. Well, today, the wife returned to our friends in Crouch End and uh, our friend Jessica is going to be preparing a Sunday roast of her own lamb shoulder, but I opted not to go. Because I need alone time. This has been one of the big problems in our European sabbatical. Uh, Martha, I think, enjoys my company and I enjoy hers. The problem is I also enjoy my own company and need it just to keep my head on straight. I, you know, th- this is the mark of the introvert. I need to be alone. I think I've talked about this before. I need to be alone, and even even when I'm with my bride, my lovely, lovely bride, 
oftentimes I'm thinking to myself, can you get the fuck out of my face? She's doing nothing wrong. She's being her perfectly lovely self when she's not yelling at me about various things I have done wrong. The problem isn't her. It is my, uh, it's not even a desire. It really does feel like a need to be alone. So I said to her today, I said, lady, you go up to Crouch and you enjoy your Sunday roast. Please allow me my solitude. And she knows this about me and she did not mind at all. Uh, So she went there and I had myself a uh, a feast. I, I, I took a little walksie from our London flat in Maida Vale, which is a little neighborhood here, in uh, also called Little Venice is part of it. And uh, you know, there's too many neighborhoods. I can't keep track of really any of them, but I know this one is called Maida Vale. And uh, I walked about 10 minutes, and there's a fine strip of stores there. Like, this is what's, it's not, well, it, it's, it's weird about London compared to Rome, but just like, it's just like New York, where if you walk a block or two in any one direction, you'll end up in a totally different kind of neighborhood. So not 12 minutes by foot from our flat is a whole different uh, neighborhood. I don't know what name it is. Maybe it's still made available. I don't know. But the stores go from like, coffee shops and pubs and uh, sort of, you know, slightly upscale shopping to suddenly you're, you're in like Turkey. There's, there's all kinds of like shish kebabs and Mediterranean foods. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, everything's in, all the signs are in Arabic and all the, the people appear to be Muslim. I don't know what the percentage of Muslims is in London. It's, I feel like it's gotta be close to 30% or something. It's very, very high. And for an American, that's unusual, you know, somewhat exotic. And, uh, you know, it does, it does provoke in one initially a feeling of, of uh, slight discomfort because suddenly you're in, you're in the minority in these neighborhoods and you're not used to it, you know. This is the privilege of being a white dude in America. Everywhere you go there, you know, your chances are you're, 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 you know, you're going to be among other whiteies. But here in London, you walk around, and one minute you're among other whiteies, and the next minute you're in you're among uh, like a, a mostly Muslim and Arabic population, and it takes a minute to be like, oh yeah, this is fine, this is fine. Like last week, not even last week, a few days ago, we went to uh, this like architectural salvage warehouse that Martha wanted to visit because she is an interior designer and she knows about these things and she was all excited and I didn't want to go. Of course I didn't want to go. Why would I? But I needed the steps and I wanted to keep her company. So we walked two miles over to this agricultural, uh, agricultural, architectural warehouse and it was in another one of these neighborhoods. And uh, she said to the fellow when she got in, hey, where's a good spot for lunch? And he said, well, you got, you got a couple choices. Here's the two that I would recommend. If you go one way, there's a deli and they have like uh, burritos and such. If you go the other way, uh, there's a Persian place that's, that uh, is just delicious. So, you know, I said to myself, Persian food, I don't think I've ever had that. That sounds great. So after we moseyed around the architectural salvage warehouse, we went to this Persian place and by God, it was terrific. On the menu, it said, we were there on a Friday, it said, uh, special stew only available on Fridays. And it said what it was, but didn't say any of the ingredients or anything. And Martha ordered something, and, and, and I said, I'll have the special stew. 
And the guy looked at me and he said, have you ever, do you know how to eat it? And that had me worried immediately. Do I know how to eat it? You know, most things are fairly self-explanatory. I said, no, I have no idea. He said, all right, well, I'll show you how. So we waited and, and, and uh, they brought out this amazing, I mean, we ordered it, these amazing appetizers that we ordered, a little tabula, which I guess I don't love, but this, this like eggplanty thing, which we ordered, which was just fantastic. They brought out these huge things of flatbread, fantastic. And then finally the, the stew comes and it, it comes in, in a, like a pot, like an earthen pot that's sort of, uh, you know, when you do the shape with your hands, you know, when you're, when you're outlining the, late, the body of a lady, it looked like one of those type things, but you know, from the torso down. And then there was like a, there was like a plastic tongue in there and some sort of masher. And then there was a side of like pickled stuff and a bowl. And it wasn't at all obvious what you're supposed to do with it. And so the fella came and he showed me. So the first thing you do is you pour out the liquid that's in the stew into the bowl. And, and, and then you take the masher and you mash the stew, you know, like you're churning butter, you churn the stew. Then you scoop it out onto a plate. Then you take some of the bread and you tear it all up, like as small as you can get it. And you put it into the liquid that you've just skimmed from the, the pot. Then you take some of the liquid and you put it on the stew and you eat it thusly. And then you, and then more you go, you, the more liquid you put on, you know, it's like a, it's like a sauce that you use to flavor it. And then the pickled stuff, you just eat whenever you feel like a little pickled stuff. And boy, howdy, it was terrific. But the other thing was they gave you so much food. They gave you an alarming amount of food. So much so that when it came and Martha's, Martha's dish was enormous, she said to the fella, Hey, what am I supposed to do with all this food? He said, what you do is you're going to eat what you want, then you're going to pack it up, you're going to bring it home, and you're not going to cook for three days. And that, in fact, is what has happened. What a deal. Afterwards, we said to each other, if we ever had friends here in London, we would make a special trip to go back to that neighborhood, to go back to that Persian place. That's how good it was. Just tremendous. But the thing about these neighborhoods, like most immigrant neighborhoods in most cities, is that, you know, a lot of times they're a little rough around the edges, a little down at the heels. Because when immigrants come to any nation, they tend to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and they tend to take the cheaper uh, apartments and, you know, they open up the mom and pop shops and, you know, they have the bazaars in the street and all kinds of stuff. And it put me in the mind of the Griffiths family who are currently residing in some down at the heel neighborhood in Kansas City here in American Tragedy where they've set up shop, their congregational shop. You know, they've been chasing the spirit of God all across this country from uh, Omaha and St. Louis, and now they're in Kansas City and, I don't know, other parts like that. Other part, they, they listed the cities before, but now what am I going to do? Go back and look? I don't have that kind of energy. And we've described uh, the patriarch Asa, and we've described the daughter Hester, known as Esther, and we've described Clyde, the sullen son, and it looks like we're about to get into a little bit more of the mother here in chapter two. So why don't we pick it up without any further adieu with chapter two in American Tragedy.
Mrs. Elvira Griffiths, before she had married Asa, had been nothing but an ignorant farm girl, brought up without much thought of religion of any kind. But having fallen in love with him, she had become inoculated with the virus of evangelism and proselytizing which dominated him, and had followed him gladly and enthusiastically in all of his ventures and through all of his vagaries. Being rather flattered by the knowledge that she could speak and sing, her ability to sway and persuade and control people with the word of God as she saw it, she had become more or less pleased with herself on this account, and so persuaded to continue. Well, it sounds like uh, what happened to her is exactly like what is happening, what they're trying to do to their daughter, Hester. You know, you remember they said that she didn't have much of a voice and she had a, uh, what is the phrase, like an unimportant structure or something to her physiognomy, whatever that word is. And uh, it sounds like she became, uh, she, she had the same experience where she found something. She found something that, that she thought she could be good at, and in, 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 in uh, taking that leap of faith, pun intended, she became that much more invested in its own truthiness and righteousness. And so she de- devoted herself to this advocation, which she uh, more or less inherited from her love, Asa. Occasionally, a small band of people followed the preachers to their mission, or learning of its existence through their street work, appeared there later. Those odd and mentally disturbed or distraught souls who are to be found in every place. And it had been Clyde's compulsory duty throughout the years, when he could not act for himself, to be in attendance at these various meetings. As always, he had been more irritated than favorably impressed by the types of men and women who came here, mostly men, down-and-out laborers, loafers, drunkards, wastrels, the botched and helpless, who seemed to drift in because they had no other place to go. They were always testifying as to how God or Christ or divine grace had rescued them for this or that predicament, never how they had rescued anyone else. And always his father and mother were saying, Amen, and glory to God, and singing hymns, and afterward taking up a collection for the legitimate expenses of the hall, collections which, as he surmised, were little enough, barely enough to keep the various missions they had conducted in existence. So I feel like I owe the Griffiths a slight apology because my inclination when we first began reading this story was to doubt the sincerity of their purpose. There they were out on the street corner singing hymns, doing their little godly doo-wop, and preaching their preaches and asking for some humble donation. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds like a grift, does it not? Pass the hat, you know. I doubted their sincerity, but now I think I do not. Not when I read about Mrs. Elvira Griffiths, her betrothed Asa, 
and the convictions they seem to have towards the poor and penitent. It seemed they seem sincere in their beliefs, and, and one has to congratulate such people, even if it hasn't exactly worked out in, in the way that they saw fit when they underwent this work to begin with. You, you have to say to yourself, well, they've stuck with it, and they are to be commended for such, no matter how shabby and meager their subsistence is. I mean, you know, Jesus wasn't driving around in a Mercedes-Benz, was he? No siree. They judge themselves not by their material goods, but by the spiritual good that they do. T. Dreiser, our author, however, seems to have some uh, cynicism when it comes to the efficacy of such works. They were always testifying as to how God or Christ or divine grace had rescued them for this and that predicament, never how they had rescued anyone else. And had they been rescued... Why would they be in need of further rescue when they come shambling in off the streets to ask for some more do-re-mi from the Griffiths? Not the Griffiths, just the Griffiths. The one thing that really interested him in connection with his parents was the existence somewhere in the east in a small city called Lycurgus near Utica, he understood, of an uncle, a brother of his father's, who was plainly different from all this. That uncle, Samuel Griffiths by name, was rich. I feel my cockerel starting to cockerel. Cocker. You know, when I hear that word, rich, man. You know, my American DNA uh, fireworks start, start going off in my deoxyribonucleic acid when I hear that word, rich. Because I, too, am not immune from uh, this capitalist greed that I think we're going to hear a lot about as we proceed in this tale. In one way or another, from casual remarks dropped by his parents, Clyde had heard references to certain things this particular uncle might do for a person if he but would. References to the fact that he was a shrewd, hard businessman, that he had a great house and a large factory in Lycurgus for the manufacture of collars and shirts, which employed not less than 300 people, that he had a son who must be about Clyde's age, and several daughters, two at least, all of whom must be, as Clyde imagined, living in luxury, in Lycurgus, 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 Lycurgus. News of all this had apparently been brought west in some way by people who knew Asa and his father and brother. As Clyde pictured this uncle, he must be a kind of Croesus, living in ease and luxury there in the east, while here in the west, Kansas City, He and his parents and his brother and sisters were living in the same wretched and humdrum hand-to-mouth state that had always characterized their lives. I feel like I should look up Lycurgus. Is that a real place, I wonder? I mean, Utica is. I've never heard of Lycurgus. Is that even how you pronounce it? Let's see. Cranking up the old research machine. Uh, Lycurgus, New York, does seem to be a place. Uh, oh, no, it's, it is fictional. It is fictional. It is uh, based on Cortland, 70 miles west of the Glimmer Glass 
festival there. All right, I don't know what the Glimmerglass Festival is. Um, so that's a, that's a made-up place, good enough. Where does that come from? Let's look it up Lycurgus. I'm just Googling it. He was the legendary lawgiver of Sparta, credited with establishing the military-oriented reformation of Spartan society in accordance with the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. So, will Samuel Griffiths also reform Lycurgian society or society writ large? I don't know, but I'm sure we will find out. But for this, apart from anything he might do for himself, as he early began to see... Oh, well, actually, before I keep reading, why don't we take a break? You know, we've reached the halfway port, or uh, thereabouts. Take a little break. Wet our whistles. Stretch our hammies. Let our uh, chicken shawarmas... Oh, because that's what I ate. I never told you. I walked, I walked out of the neighborhood to one of, the, to one of these uh, places, got myself a tremendous chicken shawarma and a Diet Coke. Not, not a traditional London Sunday roast by any stretch of the imagination, but delicious nonetheless. Now it's sitting in my belly. I just got to let it uh, gurgitate. So I'm going to let it gurgitate for a moment or two, and then we will return in a moment on Obscure. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Back in Obscure, my Iraqi burrito gurgitating away. That chicken shawarma. Loaded with veggies, by the way, and some sort of cream sauce. That I've been looking for kind of like a spicy version of this, but I don't know what you call it. So I go into these little shoppies and I say, hey, give me a shawarma. And, uh, I, and, and they never ask, do I want the spicy sauce? I don't know. Is that the, just the doner kebab you get the spicy stuff? I don't know. But, you know, when, when, the, when the signs are all in Arabic, you don't want to look like a rube. You don't want to look like a fool and say, well, I can't read this. This place didn't even have a menu. You just walked in, there were two things of meat on two different spits, one lamb, one chicken. I, I didn't know what to say, so I said, I'll have the chicken shawarma, please. And that's what he gave me, delicious. But, you know, it takes a little while to, uh, to rend. Back on Obscure, we, uh, Clyde, you know, we're talking about Clyde and his rich uncle. 
out there in Lycurgus, New York, near Utica. And we know Clyde's going to make his way east, don't we? Isn't that, you know, uh, it used to be in the early part of uh, American history, you'd say, go west, young man, go west. But then they conquered the continent, did they not? People found their fortune. They panned for gold. They struck oil. And now you've got a reverse migration perhaps happening. You've got Clyde Griffiths out there in Kansas City looking east to make his fortune in shirt collars or some such thing. Back to the book. But for this, apart from anything he might do for himself, as he early began to see there was no remedy, for at 15, and even a little earlier, Clyde began to understand that his education, as well as his sisters and brothers, had been sadly neglected. And it would be rather hard for him to overcome this handicap, seeing that other boys and girls with more money and better homes were being trained for special kinds of work. How was one to get a start under such circumstances? Already, when at the age of 13, 14, and 15, he began looking in the papers, which, being too worldly, had never been admitted to his home. He found that mostly skilled help was wanted, or boys to learn trades, in which, at the moment, he was not very much interested. For true to the standard of the American youth, or the general American attitude toward life, he felt himself above the type of labor which was purely manual. What? Run a machine? Lay bricks? Learn to be a carpenter, or a plasterer, or plumber, when boys no better than himself were clerks and druggists' assistants and bookkeepers and assistants in banks, in real estate offices and such. Wasn't it menial, as miserable as the life he had thus far been uh, leading, to wear old clothes and get up so early in the morning and do all the commonplace things such people had to do? Well, fortune has changed, has it not, dear listener? When we've got AI now, replacing the druggists' assistants and bookkeepers and assistants in banks and real estate offices and such, are we not told now that if you want to have steady employment, by God, learn a trade? Become a plasterer or a plumber or a carpenter. Learn something that the robots cannot yet do. Swing a hammer. Learn to do something with your hands. Don't start another goddamn podcast when the AI can do a better podcast than you ever will. What are you thinking, you fool? Learning to design video games when with the touch of a button, AI can create the superest of Mario Brothers. Learn to hang a chandelier, why don't you? Learn to paper a wall. But all of that is a hundred years and more ahead of poor Clyde Griffiths, who is reading the newspaper, newspapers themselves, still being du jour, not yet threatened by the internet, and seeing for himself the kinds of boys that are needed in this new burgeoning economy. He does not want to find himself in shabby circumstances for the remainder of his days, and he, need, he knows that he himself is at a handicap. He doesn't have the education 
required to be a druggist's assistant. What is he going to do? For Clyde was as vain and proud as he was poor. He was one of those interesting individuals who looked upon himself as a thing apart, never quite wholly and indissolubly, indissolubly, dissoluble, right? So uh, it can be dissolved, indissolubly, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that word, merged with the family of which he was a member and never with any profound obligations to those who had been responsible for his coming into the world. On the contrary, he was inclined to study his parents, not too sharply or bitterly, but with a very fair grasp of their qualities and capabilities, and yet, with so much judgment in that direction, he was never quite able, at least not until he had reached his sixteenth year, to formulate any policy in regard to himself, and then only in a rather fumbling and tentative way. Well, he just sounds like the average American teen, does he not? I mean, Dreiser is, I think, uh, pointing quite correctly at the American character, that, that American individualism, which has done so much good and so much harm, Dreiser seems to be looking at it with a slightly jaundiced eye, or maybe not so slightly. It's hard to say because he seems to be looking at everything with a slightly jaundiced eye. Religion, conformity, the cityscape, capitalism, those derelicts who come in off the streets, and now individualism itself. Where does Dreiser stand on anything? Hard to know at this point. Hard to know where his sentiments lie, but safe to say that uh, he is a writer of some perception. Incidentally, by that time, the sex lure or appeal had began to manifest itself, and he was already intensely interested and troubled by the beauty of the opposite sex its attractions for him, and his attraction for it. And, naturally and coincidentally, the matter of his clothes and his physical appearance had begun to trouble him not a little. How he looked, and how other boys looked. It was painful to him now to think that his clothes were not right, that he was not as handsome as he might be, not as interesting, What a wretched thing it was to be born poor, and not to have anyone to do anything for you, and not to be able to do so very much for yourself. And I should note that there is an exclamation point here, just to emphasize how wretched in fact it is. Casual examination of himself in mirrors whenever he found them tended rather to assure him that he was not so bad-looking, a straight, well-cut nose, high, white forehead, wavy, glossy, black hair, eyes that were black and rather, rather melancholy at times. And yet the fact that his family was the unhappy thing that it was, that he never had any real friends and could not have any as he saw it because of the work and connection of his parents, was now tending more and more 
to induce a kind of mental depression or melancholia, which promised not so well for his future. It served to make him rebellious and hence lethargic at times. Who does he sound like? If we had to compare him to anybody that we all know, who does he sound like? Heathcliff. Does he not? Heathcliff himself, a vagabond, himself the product of an unhappy childhood, himself born poor, with eyes that were black and rather melancholy at times. We can picture Clive Griffiths as a young Heathcliff. The circumstances of their upbringing obviously different because Heathcliff was brought into a well-to-do family off the streets, whereas Clive Griffiths has been forced to live in those self-same quarters. But Clive has the uh, advantage of being with a family, however much he may dislike them, or rather feel himself not to be a part of them. But I wonder if... His journey, Clyde, I keep saying Clive, it's Clyde. I wonder if Clyde's journey will at all mimic Heathcliff's because we know he's going to go east. We know he's going to get into the factory somehow. He's probably going to rise in that factory. He's probably going to become a demanding boss or some such thing. Maybe he will take out that youthful, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not anger, oh, maybe anger on those below his station as we proceed through his life, we'll find out. Because of his parents, and in spite of his looks, which were really agreeable and more appealing than most, he was inclined to misinterpret the interested looks which were cast at him occasionally by young girls in very different walks of life from him. The contemptuous and yet rather inviting way in which they looked to see if he were interested or disinterested, brave, or cowardly. And yet, before he had ever earned any money at all, he had always told himself that if only he had a better collar, a nicer shirt, finer shoes, a good suit, a swell overcoat like some boys had, oh, the fine clothes, the handsome homes, the watches, rings, pins that some boys sported, the dandies many youths of his years already were. Some parents of boys of his years actually gave them cars of their own to ride in. They were to be seen upon the principal streets of Kansas City, flitting to and fro like flies, and pretty girls with them, and he had nothing, and he never had had. And yet the world was so full of so many things to do, so many people were so happy and so successful. What was he to do? Which way to turn? What one thing to take up and master? Something that would get him somewhere he could not say. He did not know exactly. And these peculiar parents were in no way sufficiently equipped to advise him. End of chapter 2. And... We'll just end the episode there. I mean, we'll at least stop reading right there because, hell, there is nothing more satisfying than ending on a chapter ending. Oh, what a day this is. All by myself in the flat, 
an Iraqi burrito gurgitating in my gut and ending the episode on a chapter end. I mean, we might as well pack things up, shut the, shut the blinds and go to sleep because it's not going to get any better than that. My goodness, I'm, I just feel terrific about the events as they are unfolding today in Bonnie London Town. So there you have it. You have a young Heathcliff in the making, or perhaps Sammy Glick in the making, or perhaps a young Howard Roark in the making. How Ayn Randian is this tale going to get? I'm afraid it might get very Randian, if not downright Randy. I don't know. But here we have the progenitor of those characters, do we not, here in Clyde Griffiths, that striving boy, the American archetype, one who wishes to rise above his station, no different than Jude Fawley, in a very different place, in a very different time. And we know what happened to Jude. Similarly uneducated, but with similar dreams, right? He wanted to rise above. He wanted to make something of himself. His pursuit was more intellectual than material, although there was a material aspect to it. I mean, you know, he wanted to go to university and study and, you know, get out of the stone cutting and become a learned man. Clyde's desire is purely material, it seems, and sexual, of course. Um, If he's to be educated, it's only as a means to an end. But what Clyde has that Jew does not is two things. First of all, he is in a country that rewards the ambitious and rewards those who would strive. It also rewards psychopaths, but no reason for us to go there. The other advantage that he has, that Jude Fawley did not, is a rich uncle out east. A rich uncle with whom he clearly has no relationship, but you know how blood is. Tends to make people grow a little sentimental, does it not? Tends to make people do favors for those they would not otherwise. There's that uh, sequence in There Will Be Blood when Daniel Plainview meets a younger brother or something. Turns out they're not related at all and Plainview ends up killing him. So, you know, you don't want to take it too far. Don't take it too far, Clyde. But, the, the, but yeah, make your way to Lycurgus and over there to Sparta. See what happens. See if you can't make something out of yourself. Lord knows at the very least you'll get an upgrade on your shirt collar, will you not? So we'll leave it there. Just another Yeah, I'll tell you right, I'll tell you right now. I'm enjoying an American tragedy. It's very accessible to me in a way that these British books were not. You wouldn't think there'd be such a marked difference, but there is. Just in tone, in culture. Like you just as an American, I just find myself, oh yeah, I recognize all of that. I know what that is. I know those people. I know that town. Even if it's from a century and change ago. Or not quite a century ago, but uh, a century ago. I, I I know that. I recognize it. I know that instinct. 
I know that feeling of shabbiness and shame. I know that feeling of mortification. And I know that feeling of, uh, of being the object of mortification and scorn when one has children. So yeah, we'll leave it there. It's, uh, it's uh, just a good day here on Obscure. We've finished a chapter. We're bounding towards the next, and we will pick it up again on another fulfilling episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgren. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. Thanks.